G'day, you're on the pod with Mick and Ken from the G'day World Podcast. G'day world, this is the Cam and Mick show. This is Cam and G'day Mick. G'day Cam. And today with on the pod we have a very special guest and a different guest, different kind of guest for us. Not a technology nerd today, in fact probably the opposite. We have somebody from literature. Uh, we have on the other end of the line Staten Rabin, author from New York State. Welcome, Staten. Thank you very much. It's very nice to speak to people in Australia and all over the world. And whereabouts are you in New York? You're upstate a bit? I'm in a little town on the Hudson River. It has about 6,500 people. Um, and a few famous people live here. And the first famous person to live here was the writer Washington Irving, uh, who wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Mm-hmm. Fabulous. What's the name of the town? Irvington, New York, named after him. Oh, okay. Excellent. And is it cold? It's the middle of winter there for you, isn't it? Although I heard last night we were talking to another chap in New York. He said it's quite mild. Um, it's been a pretty mild winter. We had a little snow last night. I've lived in California for a lot of years, so I think I still have uh, California blood in me. And New York <laughs> always feels cold. <laughs> but you're actually oh. Brooklyn-born too, aren't you? That's right. I'm surprised you knew that. Yes, I was born in Brooklyn Jewish Hospital, but I was always I was almost born in a 1958 Chrysler because my parents tried to drive down from uh, about oh I'd say 25 miles away from the hospital just so that she could have her own obstetrician that she was used to, and so they made a mad dash. I don't know if they had a police escort or not. <laughs> and of course, you're an author. How long have you been writing, Staten? I've really been writing since I was about three years old. My parents tell me, I don't remember this, but they tell me that when I was three, they were going to buy me a toy typewriter. And I said, I want a real one. And they bought me a real typewriter. And in those days, they didn't have television programs for little kids to teach them how to read and write like Sesame Street. So I really didn't know how to read or write. But I was playing with the typewriter, and then I would dictate stories to my mother, and she would write down what I said. I came from a family of writers. And so I think I really started at that age. And of course you and I uh, first started corresponding over email probably six months ago maybe when uh, one of my one of the sites that, that I kind of manage, a site on Napoleon, you um, contacted me through that and mentioned the young adults historical novel that you'd written, Betsy and the Emperor, about Napoleon's relationship with Betsy Balcom uh, on St. Helena. Yes, it's been really an interesting journey how all this started, and it's been uh, taking me through the, the byways of the publishing industry in Hollywood, Hollywood as well. Because of that's the film rights of that have now been picked up. And did you write the screenplay based on your novel, or was somebody else engaged to write the screenplay? Uh, somebody else did. I first got this idea many, many years ago when I was barely out of college. I went to New York University Film School, and shortly after I graduated, I was reading a history book about Napoleon and saw this fascinating conversation between Napoleon and this 14-year-old English girl, Betsy Balcombe, when he was being held prisoner by the British on St. Helena. And uh, the conversation intrigued me so much that I thought that it sounded like movie dialogue. showed a whole other side of Napoleon where he sees her through the bars of her uh, prison. She's being held in a cellar by her father, punishment for having stolen Napoleon's sword. This really happened. And, and uh, he sees her through the bars of her prison on St. Helena, and he said, Betsy, now we are both prisoners, but you cry. I don't cry. And she said, you have? And he said, yes, but the prison remains a prison, so it is better to be cheerful. And he mm -hmm. told her not to cry, and he put his handkerchief through the bars so that she could dab her tears. And he said, uh, remember, Betsy, I understand all you say and do. Yes, more than your parents, perhaps. When you are liberated, come to me, and we shall have my chef make some bonbons, and we shall laugh again. Actually, he said, we shall have Peron. That was the name of his chef, uh, make bonbons. But I changed it for the book because people wouldn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> and uh, it, sort of, you know, it showed a whole different vulnerable side of him that he would admit to a 14-year-old girl that he cries. I thought that was a very different picture of him. So that gave me an idea to turn it into a movie. So I wrote a film treatment first. And then I thought I'd turn it into a novel 
because I knew it would be easier to sell the film rights to a novel than to sell a screenplay. Is and, that right? Uh, I mean, how, how does that work? Why is it easier to sell the film rights to a novel? Well, each year there are about 350 films made in America, but there are thousands and thousands of books published, so your odds are better that way as well. And also I think that it's so difficult to write a good screenplay, and I know because I teach screenwriting how difficult that is, that with a book, somebody can look at a book and think of you know, a whole bunch of great screenwriters who could turn it into the perfect screenplay. But if you deliver a screenplay, it pretty much has to be all there on the page, the way the movie's going to look. And if it's not perfect, you're going to have a hard time selling it. Um, I had sense early on that the role of Napoleon would be something that a lot of actors would want to play. And in fact, I had heard um, Anthony Hopkins say in an interview on the Charlie Rose show in the U.S. on public television once that um, the two roles he most wanted to play were Napoleon Bonaparte and Beethoven. So he was the actor I had in mind first for it, and it always helps to get an actor interested. So I wrote him a letter. Uh, this was before he was a big movie star, before Silence of the Lambs, when he was known as a great British stage actor and not yet a big name in movies. And I wrote him a letter, care of the National Theatre in London, um, got a letter back from him, personal letter on his stationery, and um, he said he really didn't have the power to get a film made at that point, um, but that he would read my stuff. And it was sort of a seed I planted then that bore fruit later when eventually the material got to him through an agent when I was represented, and he was attached to star in it at that point. Um, I got a call one day from my agent saying, guess who, guess who wants to do your movie? So it was pretty exciting, and um, this is... This has had uh, more ups and downs than you could ever imagine because Anthony Hopkins retired. This was a few years ago. And he's, of course, now working again, but for a while it looked like it was all over. And I read recently that there was a new invention. Somebody's come up with a way to freeze live lobsters and have them come back to life again. And I sometimes think that this film project is a lot like that. Every time you think <laughs> it's dead in the water, it keeps coming back to life. I remember hearing about this film oh, quite a few years ago. I remember it sort of turning up on the Internet Movie Database and, and I remember Al Pacino being attached to it at the time and being very excited about it because, A, I'm a big Al Pacino fan, but also being a huge Napoleon enthusiast, I can't think of probably anybody better than either Al Pacino or Tony Hopkins. Oh, by the way, I met Tony Hopkins as well before Silence of the Lambs when he was in... Yeah. Melbourne shooting Spotswood, and um, very lovely fellow he was. You apparently know him well enough to know that he likes to be called Tony and not Sir Anthony, right? <laughs> well, he was introduced to me. I was out to dinner with some friends, and he was introduced to me as Tony, and I, right. I, didn't, I didn't know who he was. Um, it's always I, a challenge. Yeah, well, he, he, he wasn't obviously very famous outside of the UK at the time, and he, I spent a, like several hours this evening having dinner and chatting, and I, I said to my, my first wife who I was with at the time, I said, <laughs> I said does, does he look familiar to you? And she said, yeah. Uh -huh. and we decided he was probably an actor, and then it was like, and afterwards he said, you know, if you ever come to London, here's my number, let's catch up and have a coffee, and I said, that'd be great. We had a really pleasant chat during the evening. And of course I lost the phone number. And... About six months later, I saw Silence of the Lambs and went, holy hell. Yeah. Anyway, so there you go. But, yeah. he was, but Al Pacino obviously uh, kind of embodies for me uh, Napoleon, not only in his stature and Italian heritage, but the intensity that obviously he's brought to so many roles over the years matches what I think of when I think of Napoleon. Yes, he's, and of course he is a wonderful actor, and it, you know, it might surprise you that some of my favorite films of his are ones that, again, show other sides of him than most people um, appreciate most about him. You know, of course, he's most commonly know, known for things like The Godfather and Dog Day Afternoon, but um, I actually liked him in a film called Frankie and Johnny, which was a, a romance, a love story. And for my book, Betsy and the Emperor, when they're turning it into a movie, my hope is that they'll show both sides of Napoleon, not just the you know the ranting, raving, uh, powerful um, dictator and uh, womanizer and all of that, but also show this tender, caring side of him that was part of him too. And Al Pacino certainly has the acting skills to be able to show all those dimensions. 
So I guess I, we didn't we didn't actually get to that part of the story, but um, it's still in pre-production. The film with Al Pacino attached to play Napoleon at this stage, and Patrice Chereau is he still attached as director? As far as I know, Patrice Chereau is still attached to direct, and Al Pacino. They just had dinner with him two nights this past week in Los Angeles with all three producers at the meeting. Um, and I was just told a couple of days ago that um, Al is set to go, ready to go, and that at this point all we have to do is just complete setting up the budget for the film. The budget is being drawn up by a company, I believe it's called this, um, Ascendant Pictures, um, and they're drawing up two budgets, one for shooting on the Isle of Man and one for shooting in South Africa. Uh, I imagine those have different price figures associated with them. The Isle of Man has some tax credits for filmmakers, I believe, which is why they picked that place, aside probably because, uh, aside from its resemblance to St. Helena, I assume. Um, so, you know, we've all got our fingers crossed that the budget comes through, and uh, everything should click after that. So we're all excited. So That's how much handoff is there now? You've sort of, you've gone through, you've got your little baby, you've, you know, you've gone through the authoring yes. process, you've gone through the screenplay, pl- screenplay process... You've got, you know, Lynn Plachette on, who was responsible for selling Cold Mountain and I think Truman Show as well. Yeah, you, know, you've you got really some, have done your homework. Yeah, you've got, you know, you've got Al, you've got Al there, you've got everyone coming on board. Now, what's it feel like? How much, how much do you physically now lose control of what is your, has been your little baby? Well, you're certainly right that it's very different the amount of power that the writer has in book publishing versus film. And since I'm a film person, I've been a story analyst for the film industry for over 20 years and work with individual screenwriters. Um, I knew that when you hand over a book like Betsy and the Emperor to your publisher, it's a different experience than it is in film, where it's really up to them, you know, what they do with it. You just put it in the hands of good people, talented people who respect your work. I think I've had a greater amount of input into the process than most novelists because they know that I'm a story analyst in the film business. And, um, it's you know, har- harder, to pull the, um, harder to pull the wool over your eyes because you've seen it from their side. <laughs> yeah, I, I think yeah, not so much the, the wool over my eyes, but more just that you know, a lot of writers will stamp their feet and throw tantrums if anybody tampers with their work, not realizing that some... And, book publishing are two very different media. So um, you really have to come to it with the mindset that um, there, there are certain changes going to be required just in the translation from page to, to screen that are a requirement, and that improves the storytelling to be able to translate it. On the other hand, of course, there's certain things that... that um, I feel strongly about about the book, and they, you know, I'm lucky enough to have good people that I'm working with, and they listen to me, and they respect my opinion. But in the end, it's really their baby. When you hand it over, you know, in a situation like this, and when you have a star of Al Pacino's magnitude and a director of Patrice Chereau's reputation involved, they really have an enormous amount of control over how it comes out, and that's how they've gotten where they are in the film business. They've earned that right through producing great work and being... Um, universally recognized as talented people. So I understand the process. And the nice thing about this is that Betsy and the Emperor is published in eight languages. So if anyone wants to see what I wrote, they can go to Amazon.com, you know, all over the world and see it in eight languages. Right now it's in just in English, but um, in Australia and UK and uh, Australia on February 1st and then uh, UK and US already. And than the rest of the world throughout the rest of the year. And so I don't have to worry that, that you know, nobody will ever know exactly what I wrote. And we'll uh, publish the link to the book up on the show notes uh, on our website. So if anybody's looking for it, just go up to the G'day World site and you'll be able to get straight to the Amazon link for Staten's book. So let's get back to the story of, of Napoleon on the island. What uh, You mentioned before that, that uh, piece of dialogue between... Napoleon and Betsy Balcom sort of inspired yeah. you and you thought that was film dialogue. But before you uh, read that book, did you know much about Napoleon? What was your impression of Napoleon before you came to research the book? That's a really good question because I think that like anybody else, even though I'm a history buff, 
Um, I had read only about, only as much about Napoleon as the average, uh, you know, intelligent person has read. Uh, so my imagination um, pegged him as somebody who was just a one-dimensional tyrant, you know, womanizer, conqueror. I'd seen all the old movies, uh, you know, with characters, um, you know, Napoleon characters, and I'm going all the way back to 1926, Abel Gantz's Napoleon. Um, and he's which which many way. Napoleon enthusiasts uh, still point to as being the, the best of all of the films covering Napoleon. Yes, it's a wonderful movie. I certainly agree that of the ones I've seen, it was definitely the best. Um, but I think that, that most people, and certainly I was surprised when I read all of these sources that I read about Napoleon on St. Helena, that he really was radically different than he had been depicted in any movie or history book. And so my thought was that I wanted to start my book with the assumption that anyone reading my book, if they knew anything at all about Napoleon, would start with the stereotypes that we all had about him. Um, that he was this, this mean and, and uh, militaristic, megalomaniacal man. Um, so I used Betsy as a proxy for my reader, as a proxy for the audience. And as I developed the story, Betsy starts out thinking all the things that most of us today who don't know about Napoleon think about Napoleon. She thinks he's a professional murderer, basically, and that that was all he ever did in his life, take over a bunch of countries, seduce a bunch of women, and had never done any good. And then what I do is I maneuver my reader's opinion of Napoleon, at least that's the goal, through gradually altering Betsy's opinion of Napoleon. She becomes educated through other characters in the book, Napoleon himself, witnessing his behavior toward her and toward other people through an old tutor on the island whose name was Huff, who was somebody who also really existed in real life. Um, she learns about Napoleon's many accomplishments and that there are more dimensions to him than she supposed. And so gradually Betsy becomes so converted to his cause after having started out really disliking him intensely but not being afraid of him. Um, she becomes so converted to his cause that she even decides she's going to help him escape. And she conspires with this rather dotty old man, uh, Huff, uh, to come up with a kind of a harebrained scheme to try to get him off the island of St. Helena. And so is your novel, what percentage of it would you say is based on the real history and what percentage of it is fictional? Does he escape off the island and conquer the world, reconquer the world, or does well, he end up interred? Actually, as you might suppose, the plan didn't succeed. <laughs> but I, I think that in terms of percentage, there's an, it's really almost astonishing to me when I look back over my history books to see just how little of this story I made up. I think what in essence I made up is that when you're designing a plot, whether it's for a novel or a screenplay, you have to have a protagonist that has a goal or you don't have a story. So I had everything in the story I could possibly need taken from the real history. Just endless number of juicy characters and anecdotes and an amazing you know, um, dialogue and everything that I, a novelist or screenwriter could possibly need for a story, except Betsy didn't have a goal. And without that, you have no story. And that's what novelists and screenwriters do. I knew story structure from having been trained in, that, in film school. So I knew I had to give her something to do. And the thing I gave her to do was to help him escape from the island. Um, interestingly, the real character in the story, uh, um, Huff, actually did hope that Napoleon would escape and, and uh, did have some kind of plan he was trying to come up with. But the one I devised in my book, which I won't spoil by telling you what it is, uh, is one that I invented. But almost everything else in the book is true. Um, for example, she stole Napoleon's sword from him, um, and caused a major uproar. Uh, Napoleon thought it was rather amusing. His aides did not think it was amusing at all. Neither did the governor of the island, Sir Hudson Lowe. Uh, as I know you know, Sir Hudson Lowe was the British officer in charge of his captivity and the governor of the island of St. Helena. He replaced a much more friendly man, whose name was Admiral Colburn, who had initially been Napoleon's captor on St. Helena. 
Governor Lowe, I couldn't have asked for a greater gift from history because he was this loathsome man who even looked like he had been sent from central casting as a villain. <laughs> I think in writing him, I drew upon not only Napoleon's intense hatred of the man, uh, which was really kind of interesting to read about, but also all my background in film when I saw those great old movies from the 1930s and 40s with villains like Charles Lawton and Mutiny on the Bounty as Captain Bly. You know, I was thinking him as I was writing the role, as well as the real guy. Napoleon hated this man so much that once there was a cup of coffee sitting next to him at the table, and he said to one of his aides, throw out that cup of coffee, that man, meaning Governor Lowe, was standing near it, throw it out the window. <laughs> He just was utterly disgusted with him, and with probably some good reason based on my reading of history. Um, and I think... The, yeah, keep go going. Go ahead, please. No, sorry, you keep going. That's all right. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm just astonished at the number of anecdotes that came straight out of uh, first-person first accounts that I read, original sources, later sources. One of the most useful sources I found was a book written by Betsy's... Um, grandniece, Dame Mabel Brooks, called St. Helena Story. And of course, I also consulted experts all over the world. Um, I consulted the British Navy Museum, the British Museum, experts on St. Helena, experts on Napoleon, experts on Betsy, and was fact-checking that way as well. Um, in terms of the accounts, practically everybody who was on the island with him, who came over to join him in his captivity, wrote a book about Napoleon, and almost every word he uttered was written down for posterity. Um, and, of course, he wrote his own memoir as well. Some of the memoirs were in French and not translated, but and I don't read French well enough to read some of those, but um, I read everything that was translated into English, uh, written by the people who were with him and witnessed um, everything that happened in the years that he was on St. Helena from 1815 to 1821. What I didn't read, interestingly, until I was all done with my first draft, was Betsy's own autobiography. And some people are surprised by that, but I chose not to read her book simply because I knew I could get all of the information and all of the anecdotes and other sources, um, other people who witnessed those events. But if I read her book, I worried that it would be so charming that her style might over-influence me and that I wouldn't have the temerity to tell the story in my own way. But, of course, I read her book as soon as I was done with my, the first draft of mine, long before we ever went to press, in case there was anything in it that I needed. And much to my surprise, it wasn't as as um, as, as charming as I thought it would be, and, and it re I really didn't need it, so I needn't have feared that, that there was anything in it that might uh, make it difficult for me to write, write my own story. But Betsy, I'd say in my book, is a blend of, of um, the actual Betsy Balcombe, and me, because when I wrote the book, I was barely older than she was. I started this book when I was very, very young, uh, right out of college. And I remembered very well what it was like to be 14 years old and on the cusp of, of womanhood and where you have all of this, all of these feelings swirling around. Um, your, some of your illusions about the world is starting to crumble. Uh, at the same time, you're feeling a sense of your own power as a woman, and you don't know quite what to do with it yet. So I think I remembered very well what that transition was like from girl to woman. And at the same time, while I was working on the book, I was living in San Francisco at the time, and I suddenly got stuck, and I found that I couldn't, couldn't write anymore. And I didn't know what was wrong. I just knew that I couldn't finish. And uh, I did so many other things. I went to uh, musical theater school to write uh, musical plays, and I wrote encyclopedia articles and various things for children. But Betsy and the Emperor sat on the shelf for seven years untouched, and I didn't know if I'd ever be able to finish it. There was an earthquake in San Francisco when I was working on it, a major earthquake, the Loma Prieta earthquake. Uh, some people in America may remember that was during the World Series that year. And that destroyed... At the time, the libraries in San Francisco, there was no internet in those days. So I was telephoning my father long distance from California to New York, asking him to read me encyclopedia articles over the telephone to replace the libraries that we lost in San Francisco. I'd have him read entire articles on the Battle of Waterloo 
justify what Napoleon's one regret was about uh, why he lost that battle. And at one point, my father's reading to me. The phone bill was going up and up and up. And he said, Napoleon's one regret was that he had wished he had sent the guard up sooner on the 17th. You know, so I said, Dad, that's it. Stop. You know, <laughs> so I wrote that down. Um, but I was stuck, you know, for seven years and didn't touch it. And then one morning I woke up and I knew I could finish the book. And what had happened was really that I had just gotten older. I had understood Betsy when I first started writing my book because I was not much older than she was. But I really had to get older to understand Napoleon Bonaparte and be approaching midlife myself and realize what a midlife crisis would really be like. Napoleon having lost his army, his family, his home, his empire, uh, everything he knew and loved back in, in France. Um, he was basically a man having the mother of all midlife crises. <laughs> and I really had to get older to be able to understand loss. So I think that's what happened during that seven years I matured and suddenly was able to tackle the book. And when I finished it, uh, I sent the book off to Nicholas Meyer, the director of several of the Star Trek movies you may remember, uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. He recently wrote the film adaptation of The Human Stain. Um, and he's a very prominent screenwriter and director for the past 30 years and somebody I greatly admired. And when I first wrote the first few chapters of Betsy and the Emperor in my film treatment, I got his home address out of the Directors Guild directory of members. It's not there anymore, by the way. And um, wrote him a letter. I did something you're never supposed to do when approaching a director, movie star, etc. You're not supposed to send material without permission. But I was young and brassy, and I did it anyway. And he was kind and generous and actually read it. And he wrote me back a lovely letter. Um, giving me a lot of encouragement and agreeing to show the material to um, a producer friend of his. And that seed that I planted, once again, the same story where something you do at one point can bear fruit years later. When I finished the book seven years later, I sent it back to him. And three weeks later, I got a call from my boss. I was working at Warner Brothers Pictures at the time as a story analyst. And I got a call from... Um, my boss, the story editor at Warner Brothers, on a Sunday. And she said, did you know that you're in the studio agenda for Monday at Warner Brothers in Hollywood? And I had no idea. And she said, that's in the Emperor, uh, Nicholas Meyer, to write and direct the movie. And it didn't happen right then. He brought it to Warner Brothers. He brought it to Sherry Lansing at Paramount, uh, Paramount being the studio that produced most of the Star Trek films that Nick Meyer had been involved in. And it took a while, and to, you know, but that really got the ball rolling. And things have been, you know, up and down for years and years with this movie. And it's, you know, like the creature from the Black Lagoon. You can shoot it, but it doesn't die. It just keeps coming <laughs> back over and over again with a new star, with a new story. It's been in Variety nine uh, in the Hollywood Reporter <coughs> nine times over the years. And it looks like it's finally going to happen, we all hope. It must be frustrating uh, being in your shoes to see it go in and out of uh, circulation like that. It can be frustrating when it crashes. You know, it seems to, to fizzle out from time to time. Uh, yes, certainly it's frustrating, but it's really hard to describe what the excitement is like. I think even if something never happened with this, and it is, as I say, looking like it's all going to finally all coming together after all these years due to a lot of hard work on the part of... Uh, all the producers involved who have been just so dedicated and so determined. That's another important part of this process. And Al Pacino has been completely loyal and devoted in making sure that this happens as well. But, you know, it can get frustrating. And at the same time, the electricity of a film project like this, when your phone is ringing off the hook and you're on the front page of Variety and people are sending you emails where the entire... Um, the entire text of the email says Mazel Tov, you know, and it's signed by somebody. They don't even have to tell you what they're congratulating you about. If you're on the front page <laughs> of Variety, you know, it's like, it, you know, it's like the most amazing thing. It's like being on the front page of the New York Times, except in a very small community. The film community is very small. 
So it's just electric when something like that happens and when you hear Al Pacino is, you know, involved in something. And it's very exciting. And it's it's worth all the ups and downs to have those kinds of adrenaline rushes. And I've actually spent years talking about this film project at New York University. Uh, a friend of mine named Mark DeGasperi, who's a wonderful screenwriting teacher and story analyst for Merrimax and Tribeca, uh, teaches there and has me come in every few months to talk about this film project. I've been doing that now for four years and also speak at the Learning Annex in New York uh, about Betsy and the Emperor. And um, it's, you know, I sometimes kid my friend Mark that maybe he's paying people out in Hollywood to do crazy things because <laughs> we never lack for some wild story about the latest thing that's happened with this. Probably everything that could ever happen to a movie has happened to this movie. You know, there's been... Uh, you know, just an incredible number of, of, of wacky occurrences to keep it interesting and keep it an interesting story. And of course, making a film about Napoleon has been the dream of some of the greatest directors in Hollywood. I know that I've, I've read in the past that it was sort of a dream project for Orson Welles, it was a dream project for Francis Ford Coppola, it was a dream yes. project even for Stanley Kubrick, I believe. He That's tried right. to get his yes. Napoleon screenplay off the ground for many years. Full Metal Waterloo. You're absolutely right. Full yes, I think, that, I think that Napoleon has appeal for actors and for directors, you know, because he's so grand. I mean, you know, I think everybody leads a life of quiet desperation, mm. whether they're an actor or not, whether they're a director or not. We all do. And I think that, that the kind of unlimited power, or seemingly unlimited power, that Napoleon had in his life was unparalleled. And so many people would like to be able to walk into their office and command everybody around them the way Napoleon did. He was not, as you know, he was not somebody who was uh, to the manner born, and he was certainly not somebody who was part of a hereditary monarchy, though he hoped to start one. Um, so... It, this was a man who uh, is a rags-to-riches story, a, a grassroots emperor. So um, I think that the idea that you can rise from um, being a, a, a child, one of eight children on uh, the island of Corsica, and become emperor uh, of uh, France and uh, take over 82 million people throughout Europe, that's, that's kind of an interesting way to spend your life. But, of course, he did many wonderful things as well, and, and I think of him as an autocrat for democracy, you might say. Um, he was a dictator, but he was a dictator who in, enforced a lot of good things, and his uh, Code Napoleon is, in fact, still the basis of laws in France and in dozens of countries around the world to this day. That's right. And I, I guess, uh, being someone who grew up in a Commonwealth country, the history that we got taught of Napoleon when I went to school was obviously the history that the British decided was <laughs> an appropriate uh, perspective on Napoleon. Yeah. And and I guess the thing that's consistently fascinated me for the last 10 or 15 years when I've been studying the life of Napoleon is that story of somebody who, as you say, came from sort of a middle-class family of many, many children on Corsica. Oh, by the way, have you been to Corsica? I have not, though I know a librarian locally whose family comes from Corsica. It's, I, I was there in August. I spent a few days there um, on my travels around Europe. And when you, when you arrive in Corsica and you go to Ajaxio where Napoleon was born, you get a, a real appreciation for how this guy grew up. I mean, it, it was a, still is today a very picturesque but very hard, rocky island. And to go from that, as you say, to not only, you know, conquering France, becoming the first consul and then self-made emperor of France, but then his intellect and his ability to act and out-act the kings of Europe is astounding. And then that combined with the, the rapid rise and then the, the tragic fall. I mean, his, his demise is probably about as tragic as you can get, being banished to this tiny little rocky outcrop in the middle of nowhere, you know, never seeing his um, only son, uh, yeah. being abandoned by his traitorous second wife and uh, his first wife, the love of his life, dying in uh, solitude. Uh, you know, it was, 
it's like one of the most Shakespearean tragic <laughs> endings to this story. It's almost hard to believe it was true and only 200 years ago. It really is tragic. And in a way, I think that the, the British um, ended up abetting his, his positive legacy because by treating him so badly, uh, Sir Hudson Lowe treating him so badly on the island of St. Helena, um, it made Napoleon look good. So um, I think that that kind of poignancy that you're describing, where it's the story of a man who reaches the heights and then and then falls to these depths um, and is abused in, in the last years of his life, um, I, I, that was something that I really wanted to capture in uh, Betsy and the Emperor. Um, I wanted it to be a poignant story. I wanted you to care deeply about this man when you were reading the story. And I did that through Betsy's love of him, because it's really a love story. It's a platonic love story, um, but it, it's no less, the, no less intense for that. Um, and she's a girl on the cusp of becoming a young woman, and that issue is dealt with in the book in, a, in what I think is a, uh, an appropriate and, and realistic way. Um, and um, it was important to me to preserve that, that relationship as it really was, um, and to show this, this caring side of him, because I think that um, Napoleon had behaved with her the way he had behaved with you know, just whatever mistress he happened to meet in some country. Um, there's nothing interesting or poignant about that. Um, but when a man who is known for being you know, a womanizer and that kind of thing um, is gentle and caring and has a platonic, uh, loving relationship with a young girl... Um, that's that's more, sort of like a, a man bites dog story to me. Um, that in, that intrigued me, and I I hope my hope is that when people read the book and Napoleon and Betsy are separated at the end of the book, um, there's actually a, a separation on the island when he's moved to the house Longwood. Uh, he was staying with Betsy's family at a home called the Briars, um, and when he's moved to Longwood, he's separated her once there and once again at the end of the story. Um, my hope is that it'll really bring tears to people's eyes because it, I think that's that's um, what I felt when I learned about this story. And uh, you know, I was pleased to see when I spoke for the Napoleonic Society of America at their annual conference uh, this past fall, uh, the president of the society, Douglas Allen, uh, had read my book after my talk and told me it made him cry. So I thought, well, I must have done something right. And of course, uh, if I remember correctly, didn't Hudson Lowe expel Betsy's family from the island pretty much purely because of the close bond that Napoleon had formed with them? It was just another form of punishment to Napoleon, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. I think that uh, her father was caught smuggling letters for Napoleon back to Europe. Her family had a lot of compassion for him. Um, in fact, Mrs. Balcombe, Betsy's mother, rem reminded Napoleon of Josephine a little bit, he said. Um, he adored Betsy, of course. Uh, Betsy had a little brother, two little brothers, and an older sister. And Betsy's youngest brother, Alex, uh, reminded him of his own son, who was exactly the same age. Um, his son, the, the King of Rome, um, back in Europe, was being held in Austria with his uh, wife. And um, this little boy, Alex, must have reminded him of his own little boy, and so there's a scene in the book where he's looking over the um, dinner plates he used to have when back in the palace in France, and he's looking at them with Betsy, and they really narrate the story of his life. And on the, those plates are pictures of his famous battles, such as Austerlitz and you know other things. But there's also a portrait of his young son and Josephine. And so that allows me to pull the reader back into the past, um, so that even though the entire story takes place during this three-year time period when he knew Betsy on St. Helena, I'm able to draw you back into the past as he remembers it, has visions of it. He's even at one point visited by the ghost of Josephine and when he's in a delirium uh, during his uh, illness. And, of course, you, you mentioned earlier on that Betsy would have had the well, the way that you approached the the story was that Betsy would have had the same impression of who Napoleon was and what he stood for that your readers or the viewers of the film will have. But of course, back then it was uh, I think 
it was even a, a more negative portrayal that a, particularly a British child would have had because for 20 years the British had been calling Napoleon a monster and an ogre and he was li quite literally the bogeyman f that was going to come and eat British children if they uh, didn't you know, finish their dinner and wash their hands and face. There was this yeah. monstrous depiction of him which is something that you know, your president uh, continue a tradition your president continues to this day uh, in good faith. Demonizing of the enemy is something that has been around for a long time. And so for the, the Balkan children, Napoleon wasn't just a, a dictator. He was the devil incarnate. Oh, you couldn't be more right. I, I completely agree with you. And um, in fact, Napoleon kind of enjoyed frightening people a little bit. He had it rather amusing. And I think what in, intrigued him about Betsy was that she was the only one including the adults, who wasn't absolutely terrified of him. And I remember when she met Betsy's family and met her little brothers, um, the children in my story, and in fact in real life, uh, met him as a group. And uh, Napoleon noticed that her brothers were cowering, you know, terrified of him, because as you say, they had heard all of these stories that if you weren't good, Boney would get you, Boney. Mm. And so you're right, he was the boogeyman. And when the children were cowering, the little boys... He must up, must up his hair, you know, and he bugged down his eyes and he would growl at them, you know, just to see them jump. And, of course, eventually they adored him. You know, he would give little presents to children and feed them licorice and tweak their, gently their, ear and, their ears and their nose. And uh, the children eventually adored him. But at first they, they were very frightened because of all these terrible stories that you'd heard, just like you said. And, in fact, in my story when uh, Napoleon arrives um, on the island of St. Helena, there's a, a, you know, like mass hysteria, uh, which is probably pretty close to the truth, um, because he had this reputation. He was, he was the ogre, and of course in those days there weren't motion pictures to um, show you, you know, what he looked like in, in motion, and um, so people had this image of him that must have been the stuff of nightmares. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think even from today's perspective, look, looking back, uh, you know, we we call Napoleon a dictator, and and he definitely, you know, was a dictator. But even though he protested that there was a certain level of democracy in France, but this was a time of kings and queens that all ruled with a fairly high degree of dictatorial power. Even if they had the semblance of a monarchical democracy in England, it was it was all ruled by kings and queens, and you know, what most, what I find most people even today don't understand about Napoleon, he has a reputation as being a, a warmonger and extremely ambitious. What most people don't appreciate is that when he came into power in France after the revolution, France was, was already at war with all of Europe. He inherited all of those battles and I think one of the great injustices, injustices, is that a word? <laughs> one of the... Uh, this is Wait. what I have editors for. <laughs> One of the uh, uh, the common misconceptions is that he was always starting wars when, in fact, out of all of the history I've read of Napoleon, he was always signing peace treaties and he was never responsible for breaking a peace treaty. It was all... I mean, he was famous for doing a... He... he if it looked like somebody was breaking a peace treaty, he would attack first because he believed in the, the benefit of um, first mover advantage, as we call it today. But he, his reputation has been unfairly tarnished by the British, I think, in the last 200 years, and we know that victors write history. But it was a, yeah. actually quite a shame to see with the 200th anniversary of his coronation recently in France that uh, there were no official celebrations in France, they sort of ignored the whole event. Yes, I think that it's much too easy to look back at history through the lens of today and that can distort history. Um, I also think that, that uh, you know, you hinted earlier at the anti-French uh, feeling that's going on today and, and a certain amount of warmongering going on in America, which I, I certainly share your opinion, your negative opinion of. And, um, I was recently on the Queen Mary II signing copies of Betsy and the Emperor and teaching screenwriting. And I met a very lovely French couple there, and we were struggling to communicate with each other with their um, rudimentary English and my half-forgotten French. 
and they were very lovely people, and they told me that they had recently boarded the boat in uh, New York City. And uh, as soon as they told people they were from France, they got scowls and uh, you know, were not treated well. And I was embarrassed for my countrymen. Uh, just the other day on the radio here in New York, there was an advertisement for a program on the History Channel about the French Revolution. And the tagline from the program was something like, go ahead, you can stand the French for two hours, can't you? Something like that. Oh, no. so they must have been very confident that Americans are not in a positive frame of mind toward the French. But one of the things that I hope Betsy and the Emperor will do is that it will spread a, a positive message about uh, all things French, and certainly about Napoleon, uh, across much of the world. And, and um, you know, I get to influence children. That's one of the nice things about my job. And after all, we've had a very long history of a, a good relationship with France, despite momentary quarrels. Uh, they certainly helped us during the American Revolution, and George Washington and Lafayette were great friends. And, um, and, and in fact, half of, the, half of the uh, current land mass of the United States was ruled by Napoleon. Yes, yes, he gave us certainly a lot of our land mass, didn't he? Louisiana and uh, you know a large part of the southern part of the United States was uh, pretty much given by Napoleon. I think he yes, sold it for true. sold it for next to nothing. It was the anniversary of that not too long ago as well. Yes, Louisiana Purchase, uh, which That's we right. celebrated uh, a couple of years ago in the United States. Yeah, I, so I and also what you say is true about how um, uh, certainly Napoleon was not the worst most monstrous dictator that ever lived. Um, and uh, I'm currently actually writing a new book uh, about the Russian royal family uh, during the revolution and after its time travel. It involves Alexei Romanov, the young Zarevich, the uh, heir to the Russian throne, uh, the son of Nicholas II and Alexandra. Um, and uh, that book will be out, hopefully, uh, if I fulfill my contract as I'm supposed to, in 2006. And... Um, Certainly that, that reign was a pretty rough reign to undergo if you were a uh, Russian peasant. Uh, I'd much rather have been a Frenchman under Napoleon than a, than a Russian peasant under Nicholas II um, in Tsarist Russia. And uh, in, in between, I have another book coming out called Black Powder next October, uh, which is also a time travel fantasy. Are these all novels written specifically for young adults? Yes, I would say that uh, Betsy and the Emperor is for ages about 9 or so and to about 15 or so. The publisher says ages 10 to 15, uh, 10 to 14, but I know some smart 9-year-olds who would have no problem with this book. If a kid can read Harry Potter, they can probably read this book with no trouble, <laughs> and it's much shorter than Harry Potter. And um, um, But I think um, that... Um, the next two books, Black Powder and uh, Zarevich, uh, will be maybe starting slightly older, maybe like ages uh, you know, 10 or 11 or 12 up. Um, uh, not so much for the difficulty of reading them, but more maybe for subject matter. Um, Black Powder is, um, has a, you know, one, one or two scenes in it that, that uh, younger kids might, might be a little less comfortable with or their parents might be. But that one is a time travel story about an African-American teenager who's a science whiz, and his best friend is killed in a gang fight, and he goes back in time to try to stop guns from being invented. Oh, so very interesting. With a murder. Interesting, particularly with you know the uh, current state of the, the gun debate in the United States. That should be an interesting read. Thank you. I, yeah, I think... You know, because of when I grew up, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, when all my heroes were being assassinated left and right. It was mm. a very frightening time, just as today is for children with all the war, you know, wars going on in the world. Uh, but in those days, there's, there was a difference. In those days, they didn't have psychologists coming into the schools to help children deal with what was happening in the world. Nowadays, if anything happens, like the Columbine incident, <laughs> where there were, was a mass shooting in America, as you may know, uh, in the state of Colorado, and if there's a war going on, there are all kinds of programs on TV to help children and their parents cope, and parents talk to their children, and they bring therapists into schools to talk to kids. But in those days, everybody was in shock. Everybody was on their own. And when people like President Kennedy were killed in 
Martin Luther King Jr., whose birthday is being celebrated today, Bobby Kennedy. These people were my heroes growing up, and I, I just grew up with a very passionate hatred of, of guns, which is kind of ironic because a lot of what I write about is war. My father is a war veteran, and I have enormous respect for veterans, and anybody certainly fighting a war. Um, you know, soldiers I have respect for our soldiers fighting over there and care deeply about that. Um, I'm just not, most in most cases, not too keen on, on war. Um, and I think my fascination with war um, comes from my horror of war. Um, my father, you know, spent four years fighting in the South Pacific, five years in the Army during World War II, fought in some of the bloodiest battles in the South Pacific. Um, his friend uh, Joe Caswan, family friend, uh, was a POW during World War II and was a, 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 a navigator on a bomber. And um, those guys are, are uh, people I have you know, enormous respect for what they did and um, know that how many terrible things they saw. And people who've actually fought in wars um, are not so eager to see this country get into them again. It's kind of a myth that, that uh, people who, who fought in, in this country's wars are the first ones to want to see their sons go fight. Those are the people who know the real story of war and don't want to see their children or grandchildren face what they had to face. Every one of those guys is, has been emotionally scarred by what happens to them. And the real heroes don't talk about it very much. You know, they don't sit, you know, the kid, the, the, the nephew or the grandson on, and bounce them on their knee and tell them what they did in the war. The guys who really saw war can't really talk about it. Mm. So true, Staten, so true. Well, listen, I think uh, we've pretty much almost come to the end of our allocated hour. Thank you so much for coming on today and, and talking about the book and the film and your background, your history as a writer. It's been ab an absolute pleasure. We really appreciate your time. And best of oh, luck. Thank you. Best it's of luck with the book and the new books and the film. Betsy and the rest of the screenplays you've got sitting there. <laughs> thank you so much. It's wonderful to speak to my friends in Australia. I write for a school magazine in Australia, in New South Wales, and have for many years and I'm close friends with my editor there, so hello to him and to everybody in your neck of the woods. Fabulous. And you have a great day in Irvington, New York, and um, perhaps when the, when the film is out, we might get you on again and you can talk about your, uh, your impressions of the film when it's finished. I'd be thrilled to do it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Staten. Have a great day. Thanks Bye. a lot, Staten. You too. Well, we are going to have to make him off the morrow.